Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Learning with the Lion, a community read-through of the Gospel of Mark. Over the summer of 2023, members of the Ligonier community are coming together to walk through a 13-week exploration of Jesus' life, practicing reading the Bible together and asking what it means for everyday life. For more information, visit epiphanyligonier.org mark, where you can also sign up for our companion e-newsletter. Our reading today uh, is unsurprising, or if it doesn't make you raise your eyebrows or catch you off guard, well, it's because it's been a while since Jesus spoke these words, and we already know how the story ends. Jesus says in our reading, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would lose his life, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. And the context surrounding this passage, it it doesn't really take the sharp edges off of what Jesus says, what amounts to a very stern call to discipleship. And what we'll discover, especially this week and the weeks to come, as the Gospel of Mark turns a corner, what we're going to discover is that a stern call to discipleship is actually what's needed. Because the whole reading this morning, one of the key focuses of Mark's Gospel is just how clueless the disciples actually are. Look at our reading today. For example, Jesus feeds 4,000 people. He's already fed 5,000 people. And even still, the disciples wonder where they're going to get bread to feed them all. Then afterwards, they're sailing in a boat, and Jesus wants to talk to them about the the Pharisees and the the Herodians and the, the dangerous theology that they have. But the disciples are doing what? They're stressing out about the fact that they only have one loaf of bread for their boat ride after they've seen Jesus do the miracles a number of times. And Jesus asks them five questions back to back, just this exasperation you can hear in his voice. Like, don't you understand? Your priorities are all wrong. You're worried about bread. When I have multiplied the bread, there are other things you should be worried about. Then what else happens in our reading? Uh, Jesus reveals his great plan to die and rise again. He reveals what exactly it means for him to be the Christ and the Messiah. And Peter takes him aside to try to correct him. I mean, can you imagine trying to correct Jesus? (laughs) No, thank you, Jesus. You've got this one wrong. I mean, the audacity of it all. And then um, we have Jesus revealing himself on the Mount of Transfiguration, this incredibly powerful moment foretold in Daniel 7 from our reading today where we see the, the, the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite term for himself, the Son of Man, reveals himself. And you have this, this sort of new Trinity moment where you have the, the clouds rolling in, uh, which is symbolic of the clouds from the Old Testament that were on Mount Sinai and the clouds that led Israel for the, through the wilderness. There's a linguistic link there in the Greek and the Hebrew. And as the, the cloud rolls in and Jesus is illumined, their initial reaction is not to praise God or to see Jesus for who he actually is, but to put up tents so that Moses and Elijah can stay alongside Jesus. Of course, that's not the point. The point is, of course, that Jesus supersedes the station of the Old Testament prophets by orders of magnitude. 
So in that way, both the disciples and the Pharisees in our reading suffer from a particular sort of blindness. They can't see Jesus for who he really is. They see some signs, they see miracles, but they don't understand them. Uh, They are blind to what Jesus is doing right in front of them. And so what they need is they need like the blind man in our reading. They need a double dose, right? The blind man, he gets healed first and he can see a little bit but not fully. So we need something else to be healed fully and see properly. And that's what's going to happen with the disciples in our reading. They need that second healing. So let's be charitable, of course. It's never good to get haughty when it comes to Bible characters making mistakes, but for the grace of God, there go we. Um, The news that Jesus is coming to suffer and die and rise again, that's not on anybody's radar. Nobody's expecting this. That's not in the air of the day. Um, Crosses aren't jewelry or charm bracelet charms or or architectural designs. They were instruments of torture and execution, of course. Um, Imagine if Jesus had said something along the lines of this, deny yourself and come and sit with me in the electric chair. Right? Didn't that give you, like, chills? Does it make you feel a little weird? Or, you know, come and lay down with me in the guillotine. Come, deny yourself and present your arm for a lethal injection. Uh, Messiahs aren't supposed to suffer and die. They're supposed to come and lead revolutions and restore national pride and bring religious revival. Uh, Jesus Christ, the son of the triune God, dying a painful and publicly humiliating death and asking others to join him, that sounds more like heaven's gate to the suicide cult than it does an actual religion, uh, if you don't know the end of the story. And yet, the revelation, of course, is the revelation that is exactly what Jesus tells his disciples. He is going to die and rise again, and Mark goes out of the way to say that he speaks plainly. No parables here, no obfuscation. Jesus says, I will die, and in three days I will rise again. Now, the disciples don't get it, but 2,000 years later, I think we still have trouble getting it ourselves. None of us have done this perfectly by any stretch. But what does it mean to follow Jesus and to take up our cross and follow him? What does it mean to do that? What does it actually mean, this call, this stern call to discipleship? Um, Is Jesus being maybe literal or figurative? Uh, Is this a metaphor for something else? If so, what is it? Um, And so I hope today that, that if Jesus is going to die and rise again and bid us all to follow him, I hope you walk away today with a little more understanding and clarity of what he's actually suggesting. Um, so to do that, they're going to talk about two ways that Je- two things that Jesus doesn't mean, and then three things he does mean. Two things he doesn't mean, and three things he does mean, and that, that's going to help us this morning understand our reading. I have a friend in the new, of a, who's a New Testament scholar, and when he explains this material, he, he uses two analogies to talk about what Jesus doesn't mean. Um, he says this is not an application of Diet Coke, and this is not a drill sergeant. Okay. He says this is not Diet Coke and he's not a drill sergeant. What does he mean by this? Diet Coke. The Diet Coke application of our reading is to think of Jesus speaking purely metaphorically. He's not talking about a literal cross, but it's sort of the symbolic uh, gesture of life suffering, generic suffering for the sake of good things. Um, And so the the Diet Coke reading of this text, we might think, if this is the way we're approaching it, we might think, well, I'm being very patient with my children today, so I'm doing what Jesus said. Because this is very hard, and I feel, I feel um, uh, this, is, this is an incredibly difficult thing to be good to my children. 
Or we might think, you know, my neighbor who's playing noise at 1 a.m., like I gotta love my neighbor and I'm not calling the police, I'm just gonna talk with him kindly about it the next morning, right? Uh, we can take those things and, and give them maybe a bit of a, a holier edge than they deserve by saying, well, this is what Jesus is talking about, by taking up our cross and following him. But, you know, there are some situations that really are painful, and they really are incredibly difficult. Um, orders of magnitude beyond those. Things like, um, you know, I'm caring for my loved one who has Alzheimer's, and, and I've been doing it for years, and I'm going to have to continue to do it for a number of years down the line. Right? That's the sort of thing that people will say. and that They even have this language, right? It's my, what, my cross to bear. People will say that about these incredibly difficult situations. Um, or maybe I'm working a terrible soul-sucking job and I'm doing it for 80 hours a week, but my family's in some debt and I have to pay off the debt, right? Like, that's the cross that the, 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 the person's willing to bear. And there are situations in life that come like that. And those are incredibly difficult situations and, and noble sacrifices, and there's some overlap with the theme but if we think that's the fullest extent of what Jesus is getting at today, then we're missing the point. Now, why does my friend call this the Diet Coke version of the text? Um, because it has similar enough taste to the actual thing, but half the guilt and zero nutritional value. <laughs> uh, he says it's, it's very similar. It, it kind of looks like the original thing of taking up our cross and following him, but it doesn't let the fullness of what Jesus is saying land. So he says, that's not the way to think about this text. Um, if Jesus was just speaking metaphorically, we're missing something very, very important here. Another way to get this teaching wrong is uh, what he calls the drill sergeant. My friend, the New Testament professor, calls the drill sergeant application of this teaching. The drill sergeant application is thinking that Jesus is talking in hyperbole. He's saying over-the-top, exaggerating things to try to get the response he wants. So they may not be true things, but they are the thing that needs to be said to elicit the response he's trying to get. Um, so by the time that these disciples are done in Jesus' boot camp, they will be good Christian soldiers, good future leaders of the church, and, and that's what Jesus is trying to do. So he says these very powerful and extreme things to make that happen. It's like a drill sergeant in boot camp. I, I heard a veteran tell me the story once that he was learning to fire his rifle in boot camp. And part of it is, is making sure you can adjust your scope. So you have your scope on the top and making sure that where your scope is pointing is where the bullet's going to land. And his whole platoon had been gone through this exercise and he was the last one. He was having some trouble figuring it out. And the drill sergeant comes up and starts giving him happy. And he says, Private, you are incredibly incapable. You're so dumb. How are you going to shoot the enemy when you can't even get your sight right? When you get back to your barracks, you need to write your congressman and apologize for wasting taxpayers' dollars for using so many bullets. <laughs> Right? He just came down very hard on this, this private. And, and the private's not dumb. He's not incompetent. He's learning a new skill. It's just taking him a little bit. He's not really wasting taxpayers' dollars. But at the end of the training, you know, he's got it all figured out. The sergeant needs this, this soldier to figure out how to do it in, 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 a, in a good context, so under stress and under duress. So he's ratcheting up the stress to give this soldier the opportunity to learn and succeed. And so by the end of the uh, drill, uh, my veteran friend, he said uh, he learned how to do it and, and he had a fine career and served his country well as a soldier. Right? And that's the drill sergeant method. You're just coming down hard on someone. Well, it might not be necessarily true, but it's something to inspire them on to do better. 
And so in this application, take up my cross and follow me, take up your cross and follow me, becomes this sort of verbal tongue lashing that humbles the disciples and points out their sin. It inspires them to do better. Um, you know, are you really my disciple? You know, put up or shut up, says Jesus. And, and the content of the teaching is not nearly as important as the, the, the rhetorical impact. Um, that's the drill sergeant method of, of understanding this text. And what these two things have in common, the Diet Coke and the drill sergeant, is that they hear a teaching like, take up your cross and follow me, and they automatically assume that Jesus isn't being literal. They automatically assume that this is a metaphor, that it's hyperbole, that Jesus can't actually mean take up a cross and follow me. But let's, let's, let's imagine for a moment, what if he did mean that? What if Jesus was being literal? What if he did actually want his followers to follow him, to take up their cross and follow him and lay down their lives? This is one of the great themes in Mark's gospel, from top to bottom, is that nobody is as good as Jesus. No one is as holy, no one is right, but the result is that Jesus' ministry can be very lonely. That he alone seems to understand the stakes and the, the, the direction and the consequences of what he's come to do. The disciples, the Pharisees, the Herodians, uh, the crowds, none of them actually get it. They all have different understandings of what Jesus is supposed to do. And Jesus is repeatedly saying, none of you understand what I'm here to do. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, what, is, what if he's actually saying to the crowds and to his disciples that if you really want to be my disciple, um, that when I'm arrested at the end of the gospel, you get arrested too. And, and what, when, I, when I'm crucified at the end of the gospel, what if you would to join me? What if these were actual literal words where Jesus is saying, I am going to be crucified, I'm going to be killed. And if you really want to follow me, come join me. Take up your cross and follow me as well. That lends these words a little more weight than I think we're used to. Because it really is an invitation to these disciples to say, are you really going to do it? Are you really going to follow me all the way? Are you willing to suffer from the hands of wicked men and give up your life, trusting that on the other side there's eternal life and God's good pleasure waiting? And the implicit answer from the disciples is, in our reading, no. They will not. They cannot. They don't understand. And so Jesus becomes the one who bears the cross by himself. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean there aren't some applications of this text that apply to us, okay? Um, because I do think this is the key thing, is Jesus' invitation to the disciples to join him towards that suffering and death he's speaking plainly about. And then, of course, the inability of the disciples to actually do it. But later on in scriptures, what's going to happen is this theme of, of Jesus' death and resurrection, of, of denying yourself and, and, and killing yourself to be resurrected with Christ, to, 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 to do this becomes a theme later on in the Bible. They're going to look at what Jesus does and they're going to say, here's how to live a Christian life in response to Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, and importantly, this is something that Paul leans on in the book of Romans. Paul uses this imagery of death and resurrection a lot to say, if we die with him, we will rise with him. And uh, he says it in our reading from Timothy that we read a bit ago, and he says it even more clearly in Romans chapter 8. In 8.13, he picks up on Jesus' language about death and resurrection, and he says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's Romans 8.13. Do you hear the echoes of Jesus' language here in this verse? Um, that, that you live by dying and you die by living. Um, did you hear that language? 
Our flesh, says Paul, is any desire, it's any love or instinct or drive that puts our own instincts and circumstances before God's gracious uh, goodness and will and love. So anything, the, the flesh is the part of us that wants to do things contrary to God's will. And Paul says that to be a Christian is to put that part of us to death. It's to put that part of us to death. And with God's help and power through the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that's a task, one of the many tasks we are called to as Christians, is to repeated self-examination and to find those parts of ourselves that are not in line with God's will, and, and we go to those places, and we fight them, and we kill them, and we, we, we put them to death, and when they come back, we put them to death again. Uh, because what Jesus is getting at in our reading, what Paul is getting at in our reading, is that those things will have no place in the kingdom to come. And if you want to follow God and do God's will, then you too will be interested in taking on these things in your life that go against the grain of what God has called us to do, and you will fight against them uh, as if your life depends on it. Um, and so there's this active, regular, daily putting to death a denial of self that we Christians still take on. Every one of us in the room today has at some point this moment where we want to do the thing that God uh, says not to do, or we don't want to do the thing that God says to do, as our confession outlines. And again, the stakes are high here. Jesus says that these are the sorts of things that we put to death in ourselves so that we will find ourselves alive later on. So I've given you two ways not to read this text. Now I'm going to give you three ways um, to sort of integrate this text into your own life in the here and now. Uh, three forms of what it might mean to, to do this, um, to, 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 to take up one's cross and to follow Jesus. Uh, and I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to talk about um, uh, shame, I'm going to talk about profit, and I'm going to talk about death. And then we'll close. I'm going to talk about shame and profit and death. And these are the three things I want to offer you today. So first is a, a word about shame, and after this we'll close. A word about shame. Uh, in our reading today, Jesus says that there will be two great shamings uh, in the, the world. There's two great shamings that will come. There's the shame of being a Christian now, in which the world sort of heaps its scorn upon you for following Jesus, for breaking out of line, and for doing something different. And then there will be the shame to come. The shame that comes when the enemies of Jesus realize just how wrong they were. And so the question that is proposed in our reading and Jesus' understanding is, would you rather subject, be subject to the shame now of being shamed by God's enemies, or would you rather miss the shame that's going to come for God's enemies later? And so we are, we are asked to consider that, right? To, to consider the scoffings of the world and put them in parallel with the victory that, that is coming in God. And we are to ask, well, which one are we going to choose? Um, and this is going to happen a lot. It's happening now. It'll happen more often. Um, Christians, just by virtue of what we believe, there's going to be, um, you know, uh, I mean, this is happening even now, right? We, we get called intolerant and, and homophobic and transphobic. We'll be derided as, as uh, exclusive and holier than thou. And then we'll talk about forgiveness, and people will say, well, you don't care about justice, and we're going to be, be, be committed to peacemaking and, and, and getting enemies to be reconciled, and we're going to be labeled as weak and, and ineffective. And our insistence that we care for the poor and the vulnerable will get labeled as things like socialism or communism or Marxism, and our insistence that people rest and take a Sabbath break is going to be accused as being anti-competitive in the marketplace. 
which is to say that all the great isms and ideologies, left or right or center, up and down, however you want to put them on a map, they're going to find something about Christianity that to battle against, to ignore, to belittle. As a result, um, things aren't always going to go well for us. So in some capacity, we as Christians aren't going to fit in with any sort of great otherworldly ideology or philosophy, left or right. And the reality is, is, is because of that, um, we're not going to be taken seriously, we're not going to be given opportunities, um, and then we're going to be derided and scorned because of it. And so the question Jesus asks you today is, are you willing to be, be ashamed? By the, are you willing to take the scorn of the world? Second thing we talk about, he talks about in our reading, Jesus talks about um, uh, profit. Jesus says, what will it profit a person to gain the world and lose their soul? And, and it's really a pragmatic question about what's the benefit, right? What's the outcome? Uh, some of you know this story, some of you don't. There was a missionary uh, to Ecuador who was martyred in 1959. His name is Jim Elliott. And uh, after he was killed uh, ministering to a particular uh, native Indian tribe in um, Ecuador, uh, what ends up happening is, is they find his, his books and his wife collects his belongings and people begin to go through and say, okay, well, what does the faith of a man look like when he becomes a martyr? And they have his journal and they have his personal effects. So they begin to read what he was thinking. And in many ways, he was just a normal Christian. There was nothing, a whole lot out of the ordinary with Jim Elliot. But they, there was one quote that, that came from his journal that is stuck with the church. And I think rightly so, because it's a reflection on this question of profit. Um, Jim Elliot says this, he says, He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Read that again. Um, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And this becomes a theme in Jesus' ministry. Jesus talks about this pragmatic side of things very often. Uh, Jesus talks about um, a man who found treasure in a field and he wants it so bad that he sells everything he has, and he goes and buys the field with that, and then he goes to the field and digs up, and now the treasure's his. And Jesus says, that's very pragmatic, and it's exactly what you should be doing when it comes to the kingdom of God, giving up everything because there's something greater ahead of you. Uh, same is true for a merchant who is a collector of great pearls. He finds the greatest pearl in the world, and what does he do? He sells everything he has to have the one thing that he's always wanted. Um, there's even one very pragmatic and troublesome passage from Luke 16 where a man is getting in trouble because he's racked up a whole lot of debt. And what does he do? He goes to each one of his uh, boss's debtors and he says, hey, cut your debt in half. Cut your debt in half. He starts writing off debt because he knows he's going to be fired soon and he needs all the friends he can get. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. That's very pragmatic of him. Uh, what is he doing? He's just forgiving everyone. And so there's this sense where Jesus says, when you look at the kingdom of God and what you're getting versus what you're gaining and what you have now as opposed to what you could have, think about that. Reflect on that. Um, because what Jesus says is, is, if you do that, if you give it some positive reflection, you're going to weigh the pros and cons, you're going to think about it, and any normal, rational person is going to want the kingdom of God as opposed to whatever they have now. And it goes back to what Jim Elliott said. You can't even keep what you have now, right? Our lives, our futures, our relationships, our money, like, you know, those things are going away one day. But the kingdom of God is never going away. And so Jesus presents this to us and says, consider 
which one is more valuable to you. Um, to use Jim Elliott's words, is it the thing you cannot keep, the worldly things of this world, or is it the kingdom of God, your soul, and, and, and the future that's going to come for you? Which one of these is more important? So Jesus asks us to consider it, and the answer, by the way, is yes, it is worth it. It is worth giving it all up. And then finally, Jesus speaks about death. Jesus says this, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And I think Christianity is, is, it uniquely recognizes death for what it really is. Um, it is. It is both a curse and an inconvenience at the same time. It is a curse because it is the result of sin. We know that from Genesis 3, that death truly is a curse that takes away things that God has given us which are good. Um, that death takes away things. Uh, it takes away love. It takes away life. That people grieve over death. It really is a tragedy. And um, it's not a natural part of life, right? The secular world tries to say things like, you know, um, it's the circle of life, right? Or something like that. Or, you know, death is just sort of the next last phase. And they try to, to, to take the teeth out of it. But you go to enough funerals and you officiate enough funerals and you know how truly sad a funeral can be. Because people love very deeply. They need one another. And death is never good. And so we can say that death is the ultimate curse of life, but we can also say, as Christians, that it's merely an inconvenience. That we as Christians, of course, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And so we recognize that because Jesus rose from the dead, we uniquely have hope that we too will rise from the dead. Not hope like you painted on a rock and put it in your garden, but an actual, true, existential, future-oriented, cosmic, spiritual hope. We place all of our eggs in that basket, that this world is not the only world, and this end is not the only end. Um, and, and so a friend of mine is a hospice chaplain in the diocese, and she shared with me once that she has been, um, and this has been corroborated by some other hospital chaplains and, and people that I know, that um, when you go and you visit in the hospital and people are dying, you can tell who the Christians are. She says this. You can walk into a room and you can tell. Why is that? Because some, everyone else is, is facing their death with all of these, with, with, with fear and trepidation. They're facing their death with um, uh, fear, anxiety, anger, resentment, denial, Right? They, they, all these things. You can see the negativity in so many people as death approaches. But they say, you know, um, when you go into the Christian's room, you know what they say? They say, I'm at peace with God. I love my family and I love my friends. And it's time to go. Because I'm going to be with my Savior in a world not bothered by the troubles and sins of this one. And I am just ready for it. And uh, that's, they say, you can see the difference. And that's what leads right to, in our reading today, where Paul is, is in chains behind bars in Timothy, where he says, I am bound, but the gospel is not. Uh, Paul says, I am bound, I, my life is forfeit, I've got nothing uh, good going for me, and yet I believe anyway, because I know what's to come. So that's the last thing I want to say, that Christians have a, a special, unique serenity in knowing that by losing their life, they will gain something back um, by following Jesus that is of infinitely more value, of infinite more value. And so when it comes to taking up our cross and following Jesus this week, um, the, you know, the time of year we most lean into this and talk about it is actually Holy Week. 
um, when we looked and looked towards death and re- Jesus' death and resurrection, um, we have this prayer that we say here in church. It's, a, it's called a collect, meaning we collect everyone's prayers together and, and give them up at the same time, a collect. And we pray it together, and I'm going to pray it with you this morning. It's this. Almighty God, whose most dear son went up to joy, not, went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, might find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It's a great prayer. I love that prayer. Because what it does is it takes the worst and the best and says, the worst is here, but the best is yet to come. That we have in this prayer, we have um, both suffering and pain and crucifixion, and yet we also recognize that life, life is its own suffering, but we walk in this way uh, where it brings us life and peace. It's the great conundrum of Christianity. In the same way that Jesus says you gain your life by losing it, in the same way that Jesus says you, you gain armor from scorn by being scorned now, and you gain the future by giving up your present, um, walking in the way of the cross is life and peace. And that's what we pray together this morning. The ancient instrument of torture, the shameful, uh, crass method of execution, becomes this counterintuitive road to joy and life and happiness and peace and serenity uh, and rest that the world simply cannot give. Following Jesus, it does cost us everything we have. Every ounce of our being is examined for these desires which are contrary to God's goodness. And yet, we give it up because we gain something that we could never have gotten otherwise. So I say to you, friends, this morning, it's worth it. It's worth it. Following Jesus is worth giving up on revenge, giving money away. It's worth ending the bad habit of saying no to all these ungodly pleasures in this world. And it's worth the shame and the rejection that the world heaps upon us. And it's worth not only the death of our unholy desires, but it's worth facing death itself. And all the disciples won't get it. They won't understand it till much, much later. Jesus, friends, I tell you, is worth living for, and he is worth dying for. So today I encourage you, give up that which you cannot keep to gain that which you cannot lose. In Jesus' name, amen. Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.